Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them. With your host, Emmanuel. Hey there. Welcome back to another episode of Flavors Unknown. I am your host, Emmanuel LaRoche. And every other week, I invite a trendy chef, pastry chef, or bartender on the show to discover their secrets behind the scenes, to talk about their creative process, and of course, to discuss new flavors and ingredients they are experimenting with. You can find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com and click on the episode page. Remember to subscribe to the podcast to stay up to date with every new episode. Rating and reviews, of course, are always welcome. Today is episode 20, and I am super excited to have Chef David Burke on the show. He is a world-renowned chef, artist, entrepreneur, and mentor, and one of the leading pioneers in American cooking today. I feel really privileged that he has accepted to carve a few minutes of his time in his hectic schedule to be on the show. Chef David Burke, I'm, I'm really excited to have you on my podcast, Flavors Unknown, and thank you so much for finding a little bit of time you know, to, um, to be here with us. Nice to be here. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. Let's jump into uh, the conversation. You know, when uh, you read a lot of things about Chef David Burke and uh, all with all the series of openings and your involvement in specific projects, it is very difficult to keep track of David Burke worlds. So how many restaurants around the planet currently have your uh, name attached? I think we're about 10 right now. You know, uh, we've got uh, most of our restaurant focus is on the East Coast, you know, the Northeast. And we're currently looking in uh, the Middle East, Dubai and uh, Saudi Arabia. A lot of our focus is on uh, New Jersey, outside of Manhattan, Long Island, upstate New York, D.C., Philadelphia. But currently, most of, uh, most of it is uh, three in New Jersey, one in Long Island, one upstate New York, two in Manhattan, D.C., St. Louis. We go where the action is, but I think we say no to a lot of projects that are uh, just too far away because I don't want to fly that much. I don't want to, you know, I, you know, I'd rather stay closer to home and develop a I grow a team that could, that doesn't have to travel when we expand. So you have been an influential presence in the industry for now more than 30 years. So what do you think are the factors in longevity and relevance in this industry? Well, I think having an open mind is very important. Uh, you know, work ethic is extremely important as well. Uh, they have to be a hunger for uh, success, I believe, and, uh, you know, and uh, enthusiasm. I think that. Uh, you know, you really got to like what you do to stay uh, excited about things, you know, for the future. You know, we're experimenting with a lot of vegetables now, vegetarian type of things. But, you know, I, I say that because I just got done eating a vegetarian lasagna. But <laughs> I think that, you know, for me, I like a challenge. And it's very challenging to be in this business and try to, to, try to stay relevant. And there's many things. I mean, the opportunities are there if you, if you uh, look for them. You know, but there's so many beautiful things about the food industry for that you can do and to be creative. And I'm very, I like to be creative. So there's so many things that you can work with. So it's hard not to be excited about 
opportunities. It's also easy to burn out. That's the other problem. What are the big trends today from your point of view, changing the way how Americans eat and, and how chefs cook? Well, trends are trends. And, uh, you know, I used to get called every year to ask, what are the trends? And, you know, they start to follow a certain pattern. But as a whole, if you look at, I had a dish last night with foie gras and scallops up at one of my restaurants in Saratoga. And I was like, you know, it's been a long time since I ate foie gras. So, you know, foie gras at one point in the 80s was on all the restaurants, high-end restaurants in New York, and you don't see it as much anymore. So it trended for a long time. It's still relevant. It's still around. I get it. But people, you know, backed off it. You, you got to be able to edit the trend and take out that little nugget that's going to stick around and the reason the trend started. You know, if you look at uh, molecular cuisine, it trended for a while. And because you're in the business, you're in the manual, you understand that a lot of this was hocus pocus. You know what I mean? It was a little bit, you know, it was taking what the manufacturers would have been doing for a long time and added, adding it to the fine dining plate. So there was a little trickery involved, but there was a nugget or two in there that could, that will stay, stay in the mainstream of dining. The same as um, when you had cuisine menseur and architectural <laughs> food and the vegetarian movement and the grains, you know, so things will trend and then you'll figure out where they're going to, which ones are going to get into the Hall of Fame and live on. And if there's anything going on in the food world at the moment that really bothers the bother you right now? Well, nothing really bothers me in the food world. The only thing is the overhyping of something very simple. You know, when once they overhype a fried chicken sandwich, you know what I mean? Like, oh my God, then usually these are some of the media. It's the media. The apps they say the absolute best chicken sandwich in in New York. Really? I mean, and did they really try all one the thousand chicken sandwiches in New York? No. So the overhyping, which is usually either the publicist or the, the food writers, is a little bit bothersome to me. You know, Kale to a few years ago, Kale was just a nightmare. <laughs> How Kale became, you know, everything was Kale. That kind of subsided a little bit. Beets were there for a while. Brussels sprouts were trending. And now I don't know what's the, the ingredient of the day. Burrata is certainly a good one to be trending. When, uh, kohlrabi. <laughs> Col well, I don't know if Col is kohlrabi. Uh, since last year, we heard a lot of kohlrabi around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good luck with that one. I mean, I used kohlrabi <laughs> 20 years ago in the River Cafe. Nobody even knew what it was. And we ran it for one season and we said, you know, you know, we can't, you, we can't sell everything, you know, but there's some really good farmed ingredients now too. You know, like the carrots that you're getting, the multicolored stuff and some of the mushrooms are coming out really like the great. The purple carrots. So, yeah, I, I think that grains are trending and I think uh, broths are trending, you know, like bone broths and things like that. And these are all very good things to be trending because they're easy to get and they're easy to produce. And they're then they're quite delicious. So you were talking about the media and, um, you know, obviously over the years, you have become one of the most recognized, you know, chef on television, you know, with all your appearance you have done in, you know, Top Chef Masters and, you know, the Rachel Ray Show and the Today Show and so on and so forth, Chef America. What is your view on the state of uh, food uh, TV in America today? Well, I don't watch a lot of this because I work a lot, but I think the television... Uh 
uh, food on TV has been very helpful to the recognition of a chef and what a chef does. Certainly the reality shows and some of what the Food Network and Bravo does has certainly um, made people aware of the talent that, and the hard work and the creative juices and the uh, determination that goes into becoming a great chef. On the other hand, the likeliness of a young chef ever making it to the certain level of uh, celebrity chef and or success, more importantly than celebrity chef is a successful chef is not easily realized. And, and I think there's a little disconnect in that. I, I think people, young chefs or culinarians that are searching fame and fortune by joining, it's very, it's very difficult to get there. So I think the TV Food Network in, the, in general has been very positive on the industry, but also it provides hope for a lot of people and a dream perhaps. And I think people need to realize that that dream is, is, is doable, but there is a big, long, there's a lot, there's a big pile of hard work in front of you. Yeah, it probably portrays like a certain image, which is maybe not the, the, you know, the reality. Well, yes. And it's also very cool to be a chef. When I was in the 70s, when I want to be a chef, I told my father I want to be a chef. He was super disappointed, you know, because it was not recognized as even a profession until 1977. You know, it was a service industry job. It was like a maid's job. You know, it was like a janitor's job. This was a service industry. So 1977, they called it a profession, which, you know, and that was spurred by some of the, you know, by the sea economies of America and the fact that it, you know, so it became a profession in 77. So you got to think in 33, in the last 50 years almost, it's, you know, it's really become, it's come a long way. I love being a chef and I've seen a lot of different things and what it takes. And I just think that, you know, there has to be an understanding that this is a lifestyle when you become a celebrity when, to get to the certain degree of uh, master chef, celebrity chef. You know, there's a lot of sacrifice and that I think needs to be understood by the young, the young people in the industry today. And you have done it all. I mean, you are, you are a chef, obviously. You are an inventor, a restaurateur, concept creator, a celebrity, and a forever student. I think that you said that about, you know, a lot of food possibilities. So you have, you have introduced the dim sum format to American-style dining. You're inventing the pastrami salmon. You've been awarded at the U.S. patent for dry-aging meat and a lot of other things. So... Where does your desire to continuously break new ground, you know, come from? You need to be unique to stand out, okay? I mean, there are, and I've never been one to be as good as the guy next to me. I want to be better. I don't want to be as good as the restaurant down the street. I want to be better than that restaurant. And that's just my competitive spirit. And more importantly, I want to be cooler or more unique. I want to have... You know, as, as a restaurateur and a chef, I'm a show-off, okay? I think any chef, any craftsman to a certain degree is a show-off. If you're a cabinet maker, you're gonna, you want to build a great cabinet and you want people to say, wow, or you're a home builder or you're an architect, you know, or you're a painter or you're a glass blower. You're going to want to be you. You're showing off. You're proud of what you do. So when I create menus and I design concepts, I need it to be somewhat unique and i think people expect me to come up with new things like what is he going to do next what what do you think is in on that menu or or of course you know so michelle richard i don't know if you remember him he passed away but a very good and creative chef he also started as a pastry chef he was one of the few chefs 
that I could see a picture of the food on a cover of a magazine and know it was him without seeing his name. So I like to be, I, I like to have a style or a, a signature, pre, a signature unique style of to do something. You also have to have variety as well. But how do you keep your mind open and fresh so you can keep like pushing boundaries? Well, I've never, I don't know how you keep it closed. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I just keep it. I don't know how Good you, one. you know, I I mean, I don't know how you close it. You know, I, I'm a I'm a sponge for information, especially when it relates to food. So you have been a mentor to many chefs, and um, so what's your most important values and learnings that you want to transmit? You know, to a new generation of chefs. Well, one of the most important things, and, and it's funny because I hired a new girl today, and she was cutting radishes. And she didn't hold the knife correctly. So I walked over and showed her what to do. And this is the fundamentals. And, you know, if you look like guys like Jacques Pepin, he's all about fundamentals and how you can, how, you know, if you learn the fundamentals correctly, you know, the fundamentals with knife skills and how to stand straight and work in a kitchen and uh, work clean and neat is one thing. But then there's, a, there's also fundamentals of uh, mixing ingredients. So, like the fundamental idea of, how something digests and what, what, why is something, you know, why are we putting apples with the pork chop? Why are we putting oranges with the duck? Why do we put a pickle on the hamburger? Why is ketchup serving French fries? That question, why, should be asked a thousand times a week from a young student. And that mind, your mind has to work that way. You have to start to geographically and historically understand why certain things went with certain things. Then you can build something. The same as an architect needs to understand the fundamentals of how he can put a hundred stories on top of a piece of cement, how it's going to work. You know what I mean? How do you build this dish? Now, architect doesn't have to worry about how somebody feels after they, they rent his office, but we have to feel how good somebody feels after they eat. How good is the coffee? What about is the dessert sweet enough? The digestive properties and the portion size and the balance in the dish is all very important. Was she uh, scared of you when you came uh, towards her and <laughs> and told her out? <laughs> Are you a scary no. chef? <laughs> no, but no, 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 no. I'm, I'm not. I've always, you know what? I could be in my youthful days when I was young and I had, a, you know, a lot more. Well, I still have pressure, but I have different pressures. Used to be the pressure of a good review. And I think, and that's that fear of getting three stars and blah, 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 New York Times. Now, you know, you get to a certain point, you have a, a more confidence than the writers because you're basically the expert, but it still has to be good. It has to be great. And the, back then, I had more pressure. And again, you know, yelling and um, coaching is what we call it. We don't call it yelling, coaching. We coach with, <laughs> <laughs> we coach with vigor, you know, like some coaches on the sidelines throwing the paper on the ground, kicking the dirt. And yelling at the, at the referees, the single goal is to win, right? To win the game, I want to win the service. I want to win the customer back. So there's different coaching methods. You know, right now, the way I look at it, if someone's a chef is yelling too much, he has the wrong team. And if you have the wrong team, you need to change the team. Otherwise, you're not. People don't necessarily operate with fear. My generation, when I was younger, and the kids, the guys that worked for me, we were raised with fear. Fear meant something. You know, when your parents yelled at you, it meant something. Nowadays, it's a different thing. 
I read that once uh, you said about being a chef that it's a part of discipline, a part of technique, and a part of creativity. Can you further develop, uh, you know, that thought? Discipline, you need the discipline to work this many hours a week. You need the discipline to do things correctly and not take shortcuts. You know, you need the discipline to understand uh, what, your, what your function is, to taste things, and to, you know, to be able to, to, be, to be able to weather, to weather the storms and be ready on a daily basis. It's a physical job, too. It's not just a mental job. It's very physical. And people don't understand that. You know, you're standing up for 12 hours, 15, and hours a day working. So you're working, you know, it's very, very hard. You had discipline and uh, fundamentals. The what was the other yeah. thing? The, tech, well, the, the technique. technique comes with fundamentals. Technique has to be developed. So there's some very good technical chefs too that aren't creative. Creativity is a blessing. You know, creativity is 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 worth more than knowledge. You know, if you get creative, it's a it's a blessing. So I happen to have that, and I I, I appreciate it. The tech technical side of it. Sometimes I'm more creative than technical. If you look at some technicians, some chefs. Their technique, a pastry chef is a techni technician, you know, a good one, and even a bread baker. They can also be very creative, but, you know, their technique has to be perfect. You know what I mean? And you can see that when you look at it. And then and my technique, I'm, I'm, more of a, uh, I'm more of a freelance. I don't like to do the same thing a thousand times the same way. I just can't. So I understand that about myself. I don't, yeah, I can teach something very creative to somebody and help them. You know, I'm a very good worker as well, but. But I, I'd rather move on to the next creation. I don't want to be on the uh, assembling cars, you know, I, every day. I want to be doing something new. I want to master something and move on. And that's that's part of my my ADD-ish personality is part of my creativity. But how do you do that in a, in a restaurants where, you know, you have obviously to create the menu, but then after that, you have every day has to produce the same dish for a certain time until you change it? We create a recipe, record it, we take pictures, we teach people how to produce a, the production part of it, and the, and the guys who have to uh, cook it and serve it at night, and then we continue our repertoire. We go to an, uh, we make another dish. I, I have enough restaurants where I don't get bored with the, the one restaurant, you know, not changing the menu. Now, changing the menu too much is, is not good either because you have clients, neighborhood people, that come for certain dishes. So you... It's kind of a, like our menu, 50% of our menu stays the same, 50% changed. I just opened in New Jersey a, a restaurant that has uh, the, f the flavors of Latin America and Asia, Korean. And so, you know, basically the technique is very similar in cooking, especially with these, uh, these you know, with these uh, concepts. The ingredients are similar, but the flavor profile would change You know what I mean? We're using flavors and combinations of a Latino restaurant, using empanada instead of ravioli, selling more guacamole instead of, uh, you know, some, some other type of salad, uh, making, calling them croquetas instead of, instead of fritters. You know, basically, it's not that difficult to, deep, to do a little dive into a certain culture and learn about their food. Some cultures are harder than others. They're just like languages. And you're talking about, uh, so let's, let's mention, so this is the, the new place uh, called Ventanas, correct, in Fort Lee, in yes, New Jersey? Yeah, yes, correct. Okay. So do you want to talk a little bit about this while you are, you know, on it? Well, uh, listen, if you're in North Jersey, you're crossing the GW Bridge, we're, we're literally uh, right off the George Washington Bridge, and it's a beautiful restaurant. It's lunch and dinner and brunch. 
and we have an outdoor patio. Just you know, also has music. You know, we play music. There's a live band every night, a you know, three piece, and the DJ kicks in at ten o'clock. Very successful so far. Very proud of this one because I expected a lot of chaos and confusion. And uh, you know, but we have a great manager and a great chef and a great uh, the ownership from San Cubano. And uh, listen, it's you know, and New Jersey's willing to pay for high quality products if the, if the quality's there. And that's what's really exciting about it, because I'd like to do more in Jersey. So let's go back in time. And uh, I mean, you, you worked with Pierre Troigros and Georges Blanc, Marc Menaud, Daniel Boulou, Charlie Palmer, Waldif Malouf. So what did you learn from all those great chefs? Yeah, they certainly are great chefs, and they, they still are. Well, you learn a little bit from everybody. I mean, the guys that I worked with in France, I learned, you know, what I learned for a short period, because I don't work in France uh, for them for more than a few weeks. You open your eyes to what they do and the culture, the discipline, the technicians, the technique of the French chef is incredible. But, you know, you learn how the work ethic is. You learn about quality and passion and your eyes are wide. So as a student, which is I call myself a student, I couldn't have been in a better place. When I worked for Daniel Ballou, another great, uh, one of the great chefs in this country, his technique and his management style and his determination and all those good things you pick up on. And then I spent pl uh, years with Charlie Palmer and Wally Malouf, who both got their start at the CIA and worked for Jean-Jacques Rachou, another French great. Those I spent more time with, two, three years each. And then you're learning their method of thinking and how to think like a chef, utilization, management style, butchery, pastry, all that stuff. And then what you do is you start to develop your own style. So those are the chefs I work for. But I also, when I became a chef, I also learned a lot from the owners of the companies, the restaurants, Buzzy O'Keefe of the River Cafe and Alan Stillman of the Smith & Walensky Concepts and also the creator of TGI Fridays. And you start to learn about business and how to think like a businessman. And that's just as important. So let's talk a little bit about two of the concepts that you have a restaurant in New York City, because it's two different styles. You have the David Burke Tavern and you have the Woodpecker by David Burke. So can you describe how those concepts are different? David Burke Tavern is a high-end tavern. It's not the classic tavern in the sense of beer and shot. You know, but it is a it's a handsome tavern with very unique food. And uh, but it does have some, you know, how you can get a hamburger here, but you can get a dry aged steak and a Dover sole. So it's what a modern American high end restaurant should be, in my opinion. It's straight down the pike American influences from Asia and Europe on the menu, of course. David Woodpecker is a wood burning concept that features some pastas and pizza and also American food. So that's a little bit more casual. And that's on 30th and uh, Broadway, Woodpecker uh, Tavern, David Burke Tavern on the Upper East Side. Can we talk a little bit about your creative process? So uh, where, where does your inspiration come from when you are creating uh, like a new dish or like a, a new menu? It comes from all over. It comes from, comes from traveling. It comes from uh, artwork. It comes from a, a piece of pottery. It could come from uh, an ingredient can come from uh, a memory you know so they get you know all kinds of things that pl come into play comes from trends comes from seasonality it comes from uh 
a desire, you know, there's all kinds of things. The creative process, I might go into a, um, a show, uh, a food, uh, the houseware show, and look at all the plates and the new pots and pans, and something will spark my imagination, and I can create a dish just so it fits in that little bowl. That's one way. And how your creative process evolved like over the years? I mean, is it getting easier or is it getting more difficult? No, it's not very, it's not difficult. It's not difficult because I, I have more, uh, more memory bank. I have more knowledge and I have more access. It doesn't slow down. I just take, you know, I need a few hours alone. Sometimes on a plane, I, I get very creative if I uh, shut the phone off. And I also have a, a library of 1,200 books if I ever need that. Normally, I don't. But if I page through a few books, I might earmark a few pages. And they say, oh, you know what? Braised end dives. That's a great idea. Haven't seen that for a while. And maybe put that on the menu somewhere or, you know, you know, just to refresh the memory. And so do you have like a favorite dish that you have created? Yeah, I, I guess I do. I have to look at some of them. I don't. Some of my creative dishes are not the best sellers either. I have a pigeon dish with barbecues, pigeon with foie gras and cornbread. But, you know, it's just too hard to sell. You know what I mean? But the cheesecake pops and the swordfish chop are two of my favorite creations. And the pastrami salmon. Because they just they, they stand the test of time. I've created some other things as well that are just garnishes, like the herb potato chips that you see on Thomas Keller's menu, and uh, Charlie Palmer's cookbook, and lotus root chips, and things that other chefs have used as accent pieces, like Jean Georges. He's you know because one of my sous chefs will go work for them, vice versa, and you start to look. So when it comes to the trickery and the garnishes, they're just as important as the whole dish, because they, they the accent pieces. You know, you can serve something called naked lunch, which is, we're going to start here. And our naked lunch is going to be just pure protein with a simple garnish on the plate. And then you can accessorize with chips, salad, things like that. So you're known for your, you know, creativity. We just talked about this. And, and you're introducing like odd flavors combination strange pairings, you know, with different ingredients and different and new techniques. What is the oddest flavor combination that you have ever created from your point of view? Well, the oddest, I do, listen, I put curry in dessert, which I love. And I think people understand that as long as you don't tell them it's curry. Like what? I mean, what kind of dessert? Butterscotch pudding. Okay. Butters butterscotch panna cotta with a little curry jelly. But we use the curry just like cinnamon. It has just a sweet spice. It's not, there's no chili, there's no this, there's no that. One of the oddest things I did was uh, I made a beurre rouge of red wine butter with oysters and calamari, and it had a little curry in it also. But that did not work. And that was an odd combination. But that dish, I shouldn't say it didn't work. That dish was voted the best, worst dish in the, the worst dish of the year. And, <laughs> On a Thursday afternoon, for a worst dish in America, on a Thursday afternoon, by one food writer in the early 90s, or late 80s, I forget. And I, I was panicked. And then on Monday, New York Magazine came out, and it was the best dish. So he had the <laughs> same dish, two different writers, two different opinions. And I would have to say it wasn't the best dish, but it certainly wasn't the worst. But that's me, you know. But so you sometimes, as a, Chef, you have to stick to your guns, you know. It certainly was an odd combination. 
So what, what is one of your latest ingredient obsession? Things that you are experimenting with? Sushi. Sushi? Experimenting with some raw fish. Yeah, but I've always liked raw fish, but now I'm starting to get into a, a couple of new things. Pastry again. I'm starting to get my hand into the pastry world. Trying to make some different style desserts that are... I want to do handheld desserts. You know, shareable. Not like petty fours, but things you can eat like a hamburger. It's not to say it's going to be a hamburger, but dessert you pick up and eat. You know, like an eclair, like a, like an eclair and like a donut, you know, things, but more fancy, you know. And when you're talking about, we're talking about sushi. So how Chef David Burke is going to reinvent sushi? Well, I don't want to know if I, that's a tall, that's a tall task. But uh, taking the raw and the rice, but not necessarily wrapping in a seaweed or taking seaweed, elements of sushi to be handheld, but that doesn't necessarily have to be the rolls or the Nigeri, more more of the crudo sashimi and pokey together, but making it a little bit, just playing with it my way. How do you take that, uh, like a pokey, and eat it like cereal, with a bowl and a spoon? You know what I mean? So almost a ceviche where you pour the liquid at the table, and you add as much liquid as you want. If you want a cold soup, you have it. If you just want a dressing, you have it. So, so you have created like lines of sauces and dressing, chips, and now popcorn. Uh, you, you are really blurring the lines between like being a chef and being an entrepreneur. So can you please tell us more about, uh, I think it's, uh, you have a brand called B1 Brand, correct? So how is this product different from you know, what exists you know, on, on the shelves already? The B1 is, the, is our, our, our retail product line. And, uh, you know, listen, our steak sauce is the best in the market. And I say that confidently because I worked with uh, companies in the flavor industry. So I, I know a little bit more about the flavor technicians and how to, how to use the right, right amount of flavor in, in, in certain foods. You know, I've worked with some other uh, some food uh, manufacturers or flavorists in the past. So I understand a little bit more. And like I said, I don't want to make something that's not the best. I don't want to make the second best. So I want to try to make the best. Again, you have economics involved, too. So you got to figure that out. But our popcorn, potato chips, our sauces are all doing very good. And, you know, we're also doing some consulting for and endorsing uh, products. Like we're going to be working with a a beer company and some other companies and, and helping them with the process that I can lend my ideas to. So we're excited about, about that, too. When you're talking about those beverages and so on, any uh, thoughts about, um, you know, new products like uh, CBD and uh, THC and so on? Yes. Well, CBD, I've been approached. And again, we're at the infant stage of, do of doing stuff with CBD, but we're also talking about working with alcohol-free beer. Because we think uh, with CBD, people might use that as their buzz and drink less. Or maybe want to drink and not drive so much, you know, because, you know, you're still taking the edge off one way or the other. I think that one of the things I miss telling you about trending is the alcohol-free cocktails and some of the juices and the drinks you make. I was in Saudi Arabia where there is no alcohol. So the challenge is to come up with really good drinks that act like adult beverages and make you feel good. Not necessarily make you feel good from getting high, but make you feel satisfied. You know, with spices and getting a little heat mixed in there so you get a little burn without the alcohol in your throat. 
So that's a challenge too, and very exciting for me. I mean, you're you're really everywhere, so you're you're a very busy man. So how do you divide your time between your restaurants and your other projects and that you are involved in, and still maintain uh, you know the standards? Well, I you know you gotta hire good people. I'm very I'm very busy. I'm super busy, and sometimes I say no to projects, but I I don't like to say no to opportunity if it's a good one. You know, I have to hire I hire smarter than I used to. You know, I I, I vet people a little more. People see our growth and. We're starting to attract very talented young people that want to work for us and grow and grow and be appreciated and be paid well, you know, and, and, uh, but also for a chef and for people that want to go to the DB global or my organization, they got to feel part of building something. And I think that's more, it's worth a lot too. Money's good, but when you're, you're proud of who you work for and what you do, it's also a big part of it. Okay. Do you need anyone in marketing? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> You know, what's the future of uh, Chef David Burke? What's uh, in your upcoming project? I can tell you my future. Hopefully, I signed a deal in Asbury Park. And uh, I'm also trying to, there will be a cooking school in my future where I start to work with local colleges and work as an apprenticeship program in the hotels or restaurants I'm working with to tie into the culinary, to tie into uh, the mm -hmm. local schools. Where will it be located? In New Jersey? or? Well, I'm trying to work with Brookdale Community College and Asbury Park to start that, but it doesn't mean it can't be done elsewhere. But I know I want to be an educator uh, as the final chapter in my uh, career. And what's going to happen in uh, South Orange? Uh, there's a, a project as well you have. Oh, South Orange. We're, we, are, we open in South Orange in three weeks at the Orange Lawn and Tennis Club. And we're very excited about that. It's a tennis club. Yeah, it has a banquet. Oh, it'll be a modern, modern American restaurant. Okay. It'll be, yeah, that's going to be, uh, you know, a little, that'll be a, a straight down the middle David Burke restaurant. It'll have influences from certain areas, but, you know, we just got done a little more Italian. We're going to go a little more Italian out there. I have a, a young chef. I just tasted his lasagna, vegetarian lasagna. We're working on the menu at David Burke Tavern now. Very excited about it. Very excited to be in that part of Jersey as well. So I would like to uh, pick up your brain a little bit, if I can. What would you be your suggestion for a home cook to create like a, a really great burger experience at home? Focus on a good quality meat, but also work on condiments. You know, make a make your own you know tomato jam, make your own ketchup, make your own uh, pickled onions, make a mushroom uh, relish. You know, things that you can put on a burger that you like. So I would you know go in. Look up some recipes on mango chutneys and, you know, relishes and things like that that you can spread on the bun or aiolis and then and try to uplift your burger that way. I mean, you know, the meat is the meat. You can also put a little in, but you can make your own patties and inside those patties put some butter and garlic and this and that. And no you cheese, know, you gotta, cheese. Yeah. You can listen. Mm -hmm. Making a burger at home should be. Like making meatloaf, put in what you like, and if you put in what you like, most likely your family will like. And also, <laughs> the key—I love a burger on an English muffin. That's what I use. I, I prefer an English muffin for my burger. Okay, and then you, yeah, what you toast it or? I told you, well, crispy, nice and, and crispy. crispy. Yeah, yeah. Yep, gives you a nice okay. texture and the caramelization on the bread, beautiful. 
So, chef, um, I, I know you have uh, you are a busy man, but I I, I would like to finish with like uh, a series of rapid fire questions, if I if I may. So, where do you have a drink or eat when you are not at one of your you know restaurant? JG Mellon. Okay, where where is that? In New York, Third Avenue and Seventy Fourth. So you said that you have 1,200 cookbooks in your collection. So yes. what are like the top three cookbooks that um, you inspired the most? Jean-Louis Paladin, one of the books. And I have to say Art Culinaire, but Art Culinaire, I have 50 of them. That's different. And the other one would be a book from one of my oldest books was uh, from Paula Wolfert, the southwest of France. What is your best smaller U.S. city culinary scene? Portland, Maine. When it comes to food, what turns you on? <laughs> pasta. Pasta. What kind of pasta? Any kind. Any kind. Okay. No cream. No, no, no cream. I don't like cream. Okay. I like uh, I like pasta with olive oil and sausage, and you know, not to say I'm not healthy, but I just like it more natural. So, and the last one. So, if we are thinking about the four seasons, so can you give us your favorite seasonal ingredients for each of them, starting with um, summer? Summer peaches and the fall mushrooms, winter venison, and in the spring, soft shell crabs. Wow. Okay. Thank you so much, Chef. I, I really appreciate the time that uh, you are given uh, you know, to me today and be on the show. I, uh, it's really exciting. My pleasure. I hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening today. No worries if you were not able to write down some information that our guest was talking about, because you can find all of those in the episode show note on flavorsunknown.com. And if you are enjoying the show, please leave a review or a rating as it helps other people to find it as well. If you have friends that are foodies, please send this podcast their way, as I am always happy to have more people listening. I see you in two weeks, and until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.